Tonight we do come to Matthew chapter 13, and this is a long and exciting chapter. And I have to tell you that I'm going to try to deal with the whole chapter tonight, even though it is 50-some verses, 58 verses there. That's a lot of verses, but I think we can cover it because as you'll see, this is a chapter that divides itself into some big sections because it's dealing with specific parables that Jesus gave. Matter of fact, many people talk about this chapter being uh, titled The Kingdom Parables, because in several instances in this chapter, Jesus is going to give a parable that says, the kingdom of heaven is like this, the kingdom of heaven is like this, and we're going to see that tonight. So, beginning now, uh, chapter one or chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, we read, On the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, stopping there at the middle of verse 3. So you, you get the picture, don't you? Jesus is down there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he goes out and he's sitting by the sea. And as he's sitting by the sea, many people start coming to him to hear him teach, to receive some kind of ministry from him, whatever the case may be. And as the crowds begin to come closer and closer to the water and pressing more and more upon Jesus, he's probably thinking, well, if the crowd keeps coming and if they keep pushing me to I'm going to be drowning pretty soon. So what does Jesus do? He got into a boat and he sat down and the whole multitude stood on the shore and Jesus began to teach. We also have another instance in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus used a boat as his pulpit. I like this. Teaching from a boat to the people standing on the shores of the great Sea of Galilee. And it probably provided good acoustics for him, a nice backdrop as the people were hearing Jesus teach. They could look out and look over the nice, tranquil Sea of Galilee. It was a nice setting. Surely this was a new thing. Can you imagine that the scribes or the Pharisees ever taught from a boat to people there on the seashore? Never, right? I can just imagine a critic saying, you can't do that. Teaching belongs in the synagogue. Teaching belongs in some appropriate place. It would be very easy for people to come up with objections to what Jesus was doing. You know, you can't preach out by that damp air by the seashore there. It'll make people sick. Or say, there's a lot of mosquitoes down at the shore. Or, or be careful, somebody might get wet in the water. But Jesus didn't think about that. He just said, no, I just want to teach. And if I need to use a little bit better method or a new method to get the word out in an effective way, I'll do it. And then it says, if you notice there, at the very beginning of verse 3, it says, Then he spoke many things to them in parables. And we're going to explain a little bit later a little bit more about parables, because Jesus will explain more about parables in a little bit. But let's just say this. The idea behind the ancient Greek word that is translated parable means to throw alongside of. It's a story thrown alongside the truth that it is intended to teach. Some people call parables earthly stories with heavenly meanings. It's a, it's a story that tries to illustrate spiritual truths through everyday things that we see and encounter. So now, beginning in the middle of verse 3, Jesus is going to tell us a simple story about a farmer and about the farmers sowing some seeds. So here we go, middle of verse 3. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now Jesus was speaking according to the agricultural customs of his day. Let's remember in that day, many, many people in that culture, in that society, made their living from the land. And even if you didn't make your living from the land, you were familiar with what farmers did. You would walk by a farmer sowing in his field all the time. It was a very common sight. Matter of fact, it may very well be, if you want to illustrate it in your own mind, 
that as Jesus preaches this, there's a guy out in a field not far from the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he's sowing his seed. Jesus could be gesturing over to this farmer. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And then Jesus makes the point. He says here, here's the man sowing the seed. Now, let me remind you of something. In those days, a farmer would sow the seed, cast it out upon the ground, and then he would run the plow over the ground to mix it in the soil. That was the common way of doing agriculture. It's different than how we would do it today. We would plow the field first and then plant the seeds. But in that day, they typically sowed the seeds first, then they plowed the field. And as Jesus says, as the sower goes out and sows, it falls on different kinds of ground. Verse 4 mentions some fell by the wayside. That would be a path where people would walk. Okay, Some fell on the path. And then in verse 5, some fell on stony places. Verse 7, some fell among thorns. Verse 8, some fell on good ground. And in this parable, the seed falls on four different places or four different types of soil. The wayside was the path where people walked, and nothing could grow on that soil because the ground's too hard, right? Okay, next, you have the stony places. Now understand, stony places doesn't mean soil that has a lot of rocks in the soil. Stony Places has the idea of a limestone-type shelf of rock that is covered with a thin layer of soil. You look on it, and it just looks like dirt. But if you were to dig down a little bit, you would see that it's just a little bit of dirt on top of stone. This is fairly common in that part of the world. And so that seed could grow out, and it would be cast on the thing, and it would have a little bit of soil to grow in. And because of the warmth of that, it would grow up quickly, but it could take no root, and therefore it would die. Then verse 7 mentions the seed that was sowed on the soil that had thorns in it. And this soil is fertile. Maybe it's too fertile, because the thorns grow up there very easily, as well as the wheat or whatever it was that the sower was sowing. And then in verse 8, it describes good ground. It describes soil that is both fertile and weed-free. A good, productive crop grows in the good ground. And then in verse 9, he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I just want you to stop right here. And I, I feel a touch of regret as I speak to you all here this evening because I think you're all fairly biblical literate people. I I doubt if this is the first time you've heard about this parable or if this is the first time you've ever encountered this section of the Bible, but I almost wish it was. I almost wish you didn't know what was going to happen next because just as I've explained that parable, you wouldn't necessarily draw the same spiritual parallels that Jesus drew from it. In, In other words, what I'm trying to say is the spiritual meaning of this parable was not immediately evident to everybody. Everybody didn't say, oh, I know what that means. Of course he's talking about this and that and the other thing, and we'll wait because later on Jesus is going to explain to us exactly what the parable means. But what I just want you to understand is if you can see this parable through the eyes of somebody who heard it from the first time and who had never heard an explanation of it, it's not necessarily so obvious what the meaning of the parable is. I'm not saying it's impossible that somebody would guess it or figure it out, but I'm saying it's not totally obvious. Now, this sort of gives us a clue here when Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear in verse 9. In a sense, when Jesus said that, it was not a call for everybody to listen. It's not like Jesus say, hey, everybody, listen to me and understand this. No, rather, it's a call for those who are spiritually sensitive to take a special notice of this. And this is especially true in light of the next few verses in which Jesus will explain the purpose of parables. So let's take a look at this, starting at verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, 
And hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now that's a big chunk, verses 10 through 17. But I think it explains very well what Jesus is getting after here with the purpose of parables. You notice in verse 10, the disciples said, Why do you speak to them in parables? The way Jesus used parables prompted the disciples to ask this. Apparently, Jesus' use of parables was not as simple or easy as him just using illustrations to form a spiritual point. In other words, if Jesus merely meant to make analogies or to make stories that were clear to everybody who heard, the disciples wouldn't say, well, why, do we, why does he speak? In, of course we know why he speaks in parables. He speaks in parables so that everybody can easily understand him. But might I say, do you understand what Matthew is telling us here? Or actually what Jesus is telling us through Matthew. That is not the reason why he spoke in parables. Many people think that Jesus spoke in parables so that he made spiritual things as easy to understand as possible. But as we've noted, it wasn't necessarily easy to understand. Well, then why did he speak in parables? Look at verse 11. Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Now, who's the you that he means there? The disciples. Okay? Okay, disciples, to you it has been given. Now, let me make something clear. And I'm, I'm speculating just a little bit here, but I think it's borne out by the whole of Scripture here. When Jesus says you, he doesn't mean only the twelve. I think he means his disciples in a general way. It's as if Jesus is saying this, to you, my disciples, you spiritually sensitive ones, it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, in other words, those who are hardened, those who are on the outside, to them it has not been given. Now, might I remind you of one of the building themes that we have seen in the Gospel of Matthew Ever since we finished the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, since then we have seen this continual building theme of opposition to Jesus and and this um, adversarial relationship that the religious leaders and sometimes his own family and occasionally the crowds have with Jesus. He's being attacked. He's being opposed. I think what Jesus is saying is, I speak in parables so that you people who are spiritually sensitive can understand, but so that they, those who reject, those who oppose, that it will not be clear to them. You see, Jesus explained that he used parables so that the hearts of those rejecting him would not be hardened further. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. If somebody clearly understands biblical truth and then rejects it, what happens? Their heart becomes more hardened against God. The continual rejection of biblical truth makes someone more accountable and under the greater judgment of God. But if you reject something that you don't really understand, if you just hear Jesus tell a nice story about some farmer throwing out seeds, but you don't really get the point, for you to reject that is not a severe judgment against you. And this is how it works, isn't it? You know, the light that blesses one person, it can curse another person, that the same sun that softens the wax, it hardens the clay. And so the very same gospel message that humbles the honest heart and leads to repentance can also harden the heart of the dishonest listener 
and confirm that person in their path of disobedience. Therefore, Jesus says, did you see it in verse 12? For whoever has to him more will be given, but whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. The idea is that for those people who are open and sensitive to spiritual truth, more will be given to them through the parables. Yet to those who are not open, those who do not have, these ones will end up in an even worse condition. And then in verse 13, Jesus explains even more. He says, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. You see, in this sense, the parables of Jesus were not illustrations that made difficult things perfectly clear. No, they were a way of presenting God's truth so that the spiritual sensitive person could understand, but the hardened ones would merely hear a story without heaping up additional condemnation to themselves for rejecting the word of God. You can say that in this sense, the parables are examples of God's mercy towards hardened people. The the parables are given in the context of the Jewish leaders building rejection of Jesus and its mercy to the undeserving. Therefore, Jesus says in verse 14, and in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. Who's the them? It's the ones who are hardened against God's word and rejecting it. You see, in speaking in parables, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, speaking in a way that the hardened would hear, but not hear, right? They hear the words Jesus is saying, but they don't understand the meaning because their heart isn't spiritually sensitive. The same thing, they see, but they don't see. But verse 16 is true. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. You see, in light of this, Blessed are those who do understand the parables of Jesus, and they're genuinely blessed. If you understand the parables, you are blessed. It shows that there is a spiritual sensitivity in your heart, and it shows that God is speaking to you and working in your life. You gain the benefit of the spiritual truth that's illustrated there, but you know you also demonstrate that you're kind of responsive to the Holy Spirit. Now, one other thing to say about parables. It's important to say that parables generally teach one main point or principle. You can get into trouble by expecting that parables are intricate systems of theology with the smallest details revealing hidden truths. In other words, you look for main points from parables, not every detail to have its own specific heavily theological meaning. Starting here at verse 18, Jesus is going to explain to us the parable of the sower. And again, I just want you to appreciate. Having already heard this, you understand the parable that's already been spoken. But if you would have never heard it, it might not have clicked so easily to you. But here we go, verse 18. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. All right, that's the explanation of the parable. So you go back to verse 19. This is he who received seed by the wayside. What happened to the seed that was cast on the wayside? Well, back in verse 4 of this very same chapter, Jesus explained that the birds came along and ate the seed. It never even penetrated the soil. It was cast on the soil, and then it was gone. Well, 
as the birds devoured the seed that was on the wayside, so some people receive the word with a hardened heart, and the wicked one quickly snatches away the sown word. The, the word has no effect because it never penetrates and it's quickly taken away. The wayside soil represents those who never really hear the word with understanding. The word of God must be understood before it can truly bear fruit. You know, one of Satan's biggest jobs is just to keep men in darkness regarding their understanding of the gospel. I don't know if you remember what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It says that the God of this age has blinded the men, and that's what he's done. He's blinded. So that when they hear the word, they don't understand it. They have no comprehension of it. This is one of Satan's chief strategies. Satan would never want somebody to simply hear the word of God and think about it and begin to understand it. Because once they begin to understand it, it will penetrate their heart and it has the potential of then bringing a rich reward for the kingdom of God. You know, I find too that it probably also speaks to a somewhat of Satan's strategy in the world today, to, to use a phrase that I hope you'll understand, of how Satan seeks to dumb down people in the world today. Have you ever read things from 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago? Doesn't it seem that people were smarter back then? That they wrote and thought more intelligently? That, that they just seemed to have a different way of thinking where they actually thought about things and they applied logic to things. I'm not talking about Christians necessarily, just people in culture and society in general. You see, don't you see that if Satan can, again, to use that phrase, dumb down people, make them less and less willing to consider things logically, if the first thing that comes into a person's mind when they hear something is, how do I feel about that? Instead of, is it true? Is it logical? That's understanding. How do I feel about it? Well, that's not necessarily understanding. That's purely subjective. Satan doesn't want people to understand the word of God. So, this is he who receives seed by the wayside. Now, in verse 20, it's described for us the people who receive the seed on the stony places. And as seed falls on this thin soil on top of the stony place, it springs up immediately, and then it quickly withers and died, as described in verses 5 and 6 of this chapter. And there's some, some people respond to the word with immediate enthusiasm, but then soon they wither away. This soil represents those, they receive the word enthusiastically, but their life, or their spiritual life, I should say, is short-lived. Because they're not willing to endure tribulation or persecution because of the word. Right? So you can just picture, there the little sprout grows up so fast. Oh, isn't it wonderful? No, it grows up fast because the soil is warmer, because it has the rock underneath, but it doesn't get any root because of the rock underneath, and therefore it quickly withers away. Now in verse 22, you have the soil that's among the thorns. The seed falling among the thorns would grow the stalks of grain among the thorns, and then it would be soon choked out. That's in verse 7 of Matthew chapter 13. And so some people respond to the word and they grow for a while, but they're choked and stopped in their spiritual growth by competition from unspiritual things. It's not that there's no spiritual growth. It's that other things grow in their life as well, and it chokes out the word of God. Now, th this soil represents ground that's very fertile for the word. Wow, things grow in this ground, but the soil is too fertile because it also grows lots of other things. It grows things that choke out the word of God. It grows the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches that choke out the word. But then finally, verse 23, you have the good ground. The seed falling on good ground brings a good crop of grain. That was described back in verse 8. And so some people do respond rightly to the word of God and they bear much fruit. And this soil represents those who receive the word and it bears fruit in the soil. Now, in different proportions, right? Not everybody bears the same fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold, although each one has a very generous 
harvest. Well, do you get the picture here? Verse 18, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. Now, I would say there's several mistakes that people often make with this parable. The first mistake that you and I are very prone to make is we just apply this parable to unbelievers. Oh, yes, those people who aren't Christians, those people who have not responded to the gospel. Well, it's very important how they hear the word. Might I say it's important how you and I hear the word also? You see, we need to hear what God has to say to us through every one of these different types of soil. You see, sometimes, like the wayside, we just don't allow the word any room at all in our lives. And sometimes, like the stony places, we sometimes have flashes of enthusiasm that receive the word quickly, but then they burn out. You have a tremendous experience at a conference or a retreat or, you know, some special event. Wow, that's great. But that flash of enthusiasm quickly burns out. Sometimes, as verse 22 says, we're like the soil among the thorns. Where, yeah, there's things growing in our lives spiritually, but they're choked out by the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world. And you've got to admit, the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world are constantly threatening to choke out the things of God in our life. And sometimes we're like the good ground, right? The word bears fruit in our life. This is very important. Very important to understand another thing too. Now, my preference in the past has been to not call this the parable of the sower, but the parable of the soils. And I have to say, if I can confess this to you, I felt a little superior in saying that, well, People call it the parable of the sower because they don't really understand the parable. Because the parable's focus isn't really the sower, right? The sower does the same thing. It's not like the sower cast the seed with a special flick of the wrist in the place where it goes great. Or he, he, he casts it out of a different part of his seed bag, right? It's not like that at all, right? It's the same sower, the same seed. The difference isn't in the sower. The difference is in what? The soil. And so for a while I felt like saying, you know what, we really should be calling this parable the parable of the soils because it's the different type of soil that the seed grows in. That's what's important. Now there is an important principle there, is there not? You think about it. There's the preacher preaching to the multitude, right? And some people receive it and some people don't. Might I say this? Don't blame the preacher. Listen, I'm not saying that it's impossible for somebody to preach a bad message. People do, myself included, right? I mean, it happens. But what I'm saying is the essential response to the word of God, it doesn't have to do with the sower. It has to do with the soil in the person's heart. And sometimes we think that, well, you know, if he just would have preached this, or if he just would have preached that, or if he just would have preached it different, or if he just would have done this. Listen, the sower casts out the seed. It's the condition of the soil that determines it. Prepare your own heart as a soil to receive it, and then you will receive the word. So anyway, feeling slightly superior for calling this the parable of the soils, I was rebuked by the words of Jesus. Look at verse 18. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. Well, if Jesus calls it the parable of the sower, I suppose I should as well. And that's what we consider it to be. It is the parable of the sower. The sower sows the seed... But the response is different. Now, a second thing we need to remember about this, or maybe this is the third. I can't remember where I am in my numbering here. Another thing we need to remember about this is the context in which it's given. As I have told you, the general context of Matthew's gospel in the last several chapters has been to show us the increasing opposition to Jesus and his work. You must admit that at least some of the time this was discouraging to Jesus' disciples. They had given up everything to follow him. They believed in him. They loved his word. They loved him. They believed he was the Messiah. And to see so many people and to see so many leaders reject and oppose Jesus must have made them think, what is going on here? I mean, if Jesus really is who he says he is, why can't everybody see it? Haven't you thought that way sometimes? Well, listen. Jesus is telling us something in this parable, right? Three out of the four soils don't reap anything. 
Jesus is communicating to his disciples. You may cast out the seed, and most people who hear you may make no response. Most people who hear you may not come to fruit, but it's okay. Because the ones who do come to fruition, I will do such a mighty work through them that it will make up for those who have rejected. That had to be an encouragement to the disciples. So based on this, can't you see that in a sense this really is the parable of the sower? And it would encourage the disciples to do what? To take the seed and keep casting it. Take the seed and keep casting it. Well, look, three out of the four places I cast it, it didn't do anything. Yes, but in the one place that it did bring forth, it brought forth so much that it should encourage you to keep doing it. And so we say that. We say that to every individual Christian. We say that to every preacher of the word. We say that to every one of us in our opportunities to be the sower and cast out the word. You keep doing it. Don't get discouraged. Yes, you'll be rejected many times. Don't give up. You keep doing the work and you will see a harvest grow forth. Now, one more thing before we go on to verse 24. I do just want to remind you of this. As Jesus explained the parable in verses 18 through 23, I hope you don't think I'm strange when I say this. I think it would have been hard for you or I or anybody else to figure out all of these points just on our own without hearing Jesus' explanation. I mean, maybe some of it we could have guessed, but how would we necessarily know? This is what I'm saying about the nature of parables. Parables were not stories that were crystal clear, made as simple as possible so that everybody could understand. Instead, parables were stories so that those who were spiritually sensitive, they could understand them, but those who were not, well, then they just heard a pleasant story. Verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us to then go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, First gather the tares and bind them into bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, this parable describes the work of an enemy who tried to destroy the work of a man who sowed good good seed in his field. You get the picture, right? Here's a man, he sows good seed, he's doing a good job, and then an enemy comes and he sows tares among the wheat. Now, what is a tear? Well, actually, most biblical commentators will tell you that this must have been a particular plant that grows in that part of the Middle East. I don't know if it grows other places, but it's called darnel. And darnel, when it grows up, it looks exactly like wheat. And as it grows up, you only know that it's not wheat when it grows up big and tall because it never develops a head of grain like wheat does. And of course, you don't care about the stalk of wheat, right? That does nobody any good. What you want is you want the head of grain. And this darnel never develops this head of grain. And the other bad thing about darnel is that the roots of it intertwine with the roots of the wheat and it's very disruptive to the crop. It can choke out the wheat and it makes it difficult during harvest. You certainly can't go and pull up the darnel without also pulling up the wheat. Matter of fact, in ancient Roman law, it was a crime to do this. It was a crime to go and sow in your neighbor's field of this because it was a very malicious, destructive act. You were ruining your neighbor's livelihood, ruining his crops. Okay? So what's the enemy's purpose in sowing tares among the wheat? He wants to destroy the crop of wheat. 
the farmer would not allow the enemy to succeed. Instead, the farmer says, let it all grow up together. We will sort it out at harvest time. Now, lest while you gather up the tares, verse 29, you also uproot the wheat. In the interest of preserving and protecting the wheat, the wise farmer did not separate the tares from the wheat until the time of harvest. You see, the wise farmer recognized that the ultimate answer to having tares among the wheat would only come at harvest time. It couldn't be solved, this issue, beforehand. But then in verse 30, he says, Gather the wheat into my barn. The wheat comes into God's barn over all the world from all ranks of society. There it comes all into his barn. Now, don't you wish you understood a little bit more about this parable? Well, just hold on. Jesus will explain it in a few verses. But we're just trying to take the, 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 the chapter as it comes to us. We're not going to skip ahead to the section where Jesus describes the meaning of the parable of the tares. So just sort of put it on hold in your mind, and let's go to the next session where he describes the parable of the mustard seed. But might I say something? Clearly what we have in the parable of the wheat and the tares is something good growing up, Right? and something corrupt and damaging among them, right? What would you say about this, these tares or this darnel, this, this foreign plant growing in? Well, it, it's, um, it looks like wheat, but it's not wheat. It, it's false, it's destructive, and it can only be sorted out at the very end, okay? It's a corrupt influence among the good field of wheat. Keep that in mind as we read verses 31 and 32. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now I have to uh, sort of give a, a disclaimer here, sort of a truth statement, just to let you know something here. The following understanding of this parable that I'm going to give to you, and by the way, the understanding of the next parable, it is not what the majority of commentators and Bible scholars believe. I'm stepping out of the mainstream here. Most commentators, most Bible scholars, most Bible teachers, they disagree with the interpretation I'm going to give to you now. You see, most of them look at this as a description of the growth and eventual dominance of the church. Isn't it wonderful? The church starts out like a tiny little mustard seed and then it grows into a majestic tree and then all the birds of the air come and all the birds lodge in its branches and it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. Can I just say something? If you take the parable itself and especially if you take it in the context in which it is presented, I think that this should be described or understood, I should say, as another description of of corruption in the kingdom community. What was the parable of the wheat and the tares all about? Corruption among the wheat, right? I think it's the same thing here. Because here's the point. This first of all seems to describe an unnatural growth. It describes it, if you take a look here, a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which is indeed least of all the seeds, and when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree. Now, might I just say, mustard seeds don't grow into trees. They become what we would call a bush. Now, it can be a large bush. And it can be a bush that birds would even land on. You could have a mustard seed plant as big as, um, oh, maybe as tall, at the very tallest, three meters. And that would be a very large mustard seed plant, a very small. But you know what? It's still not a tree. And even though a bird may land on a mustard seed plant, by the way, they say that the birds love the little mustard seed things that grow on the thing. And so it wouldn't be unusual to see a bird landing on a mustard seed. To build a nest in a bush like that, to me, it describes an unnatural growth. And then I would say it also is an interesting to see that it provides a place of refuge, a nesting place for birds. 
can I just ask you a simple question? What were birds a picture of in the parable of the sower? Messengers of God? The people of God? No, they were the messengers of Satan. They were the ones who took away the word. Now I have to say, and again I'm out of the mainstream when I say this, but I'll say this nonetheless, I believe that this is another parable describing corruption in the kingdom community. What Jesus is telling his disciples is, look, the kingdom of God, the, the, the church, God's work in the church is going to start small, and indeed it did start small, did it not? And it's going to grow big, but it will grow unnaturally big, so big that it will become a nesting place for all sort of corrupt influences, such as the birds of the air. And I would just tell you that this parable accurately describes what the kingdom community became in the decades and the centuries after the Christianization of the Roman Empire. In those centuries, I would say that the church grew abnormally large. Now, not large in numbers of people. I don't think the church can be too big in numbers of people. But what it can be too big is in its social and political and economic and secular influence. The medieval church, the church of the popes, the church of the great centuries of Christendom, of the Middle Ages. Listen, there was a great sense in which that church was abnormally large. And I think you can make a pretty good historical argument that the birds of the air found their home within it. It was a nest for much corruption. Now, look at the next parable, verse 33. Another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was leavened. Now again, very consistently in the scriptures, leaven is used as a picture of evil. Most commentators, most Bible scholars say, isn't this beautiful? The kingdom of heaven, it starts out just like a little bit of yeast put into a big lump of dough and it soaks through, it permeates, it affects the whole lump of dough. And isn't it wonderful, the, the, the little uh, bit of God's kingdom, it, it soaks through the whole society. And listen, when, when these commentators admit, they say, well, we know that every other place in the scriptures, or at least virtually every other place in the scriptures, leaven is used as a picture of evil, but not here. Well, why not here? To have a woman preparing three measures of meal and doing this. Now, by the way, I'm afraid I forgot to write down the exact measurement. But I have to tell you, what else is unusual about this? Three measures of meal was enormous. It was more than enough bread to, to feed. Again, I'm remembering this from my head. I didn't put it down in my notes. I think it's more than enough bread or dough to make bread for more than a hundred people. A woman needing three measures of meal, it again has the idea of abnormal size. And what is it with the abnormal size? There's leaven in the midst of it. Now look, here's the idea. Jesus is telling his disciples, there will be corruption in the kingdom community. There will be tares among the wheat. There will be birds lodging in the branches of the mustard tree. There will be leaven in the lump of dough. The church will grow, and in some ways it will grow unnaturally large, and there will be corruption in it. I think this was important for the disciples to understand. Because again, in this context of facing the constant opposition and the constant attacks from the scribes and the Pharisees, sometimes it would get easy for them to think, well, you know, we're right and they're wrong. And Jesus is saying, no, there will be even corruption among the kingdom community. Might I say, I believe that Jesus spoke this to more than just his 12. He spoke it to his disciples in the broader sense, those were who were general followers. But let's say that he was speaking it just to the 12, okay? Was there not a bird among that 12? Was there not a piece of leaven among that twelve? Was there not at least one tear growing up among the wheat? Of course there was. And this was Judas himself. Now verse 34. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. 
Now, please understand, verse 34, when it says, without a parable, he did not speak to them, please don't take that um, excessively literally in the sense that Matthew's using a figure of speech. It doesn't mean that Jesus never, in his entire uh, teaching and preaching ministry, spoke in anything other than a parable. More the idea of the phrase here is that he constantly used parables. Not that he only used parables, but that he constantly used parables. Again, fulfilling this verse, I will open my mouth in parables. Uh, I will keep utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now, one thing that's interesting about this, Jesus is describing for us the kingdom community, right? Which we would understand to be, from the time of Jesus on, what we will call the church. And Paul, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11, he tells us that the church was a mystery hidden in the Old Testament. Do you understand that the Old Testament really doesn't tell us about the church coming? The, the idea of the church was not specifically prophesied in the Old Testament. It was a mystery revealed only after the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is doing. In describing for us what the kingdom community will be like, what the church will be like, he's revealing to us stuff, things that were not revealed in the Old Testament. All right, verse 36. Are you ready now for the explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares? Good. Jesus will give it to us now, starting at verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Now stop right there. Again, this just emphasizes for us what this idea is that parables are not stories engineered to make the truth understandable by everybody under every circumstance. If that was the point of the parable of the wheat and the tares, then Jesus failed because his own disciples had to come and say, uh, Jesus, um, can you explain this one to us? So he says, I'm happy to do it. Beginning now, he answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, here we go. Jesus explained to us the parable of the tares of the field. Well, verse 37 explains to us that who is the man who was sowing? Well, he who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Verse 38, the field is the world. So the Son of Man is sowing the good seed of the kingdom out into the world. The good seeds represent God's true people, the sons of the kingdom, as Jesus describes them in verse 38. The tares, verse 38, represent false believers in the world, the sons of the wicked one. They may superficially look like God's true people, but they're not. Now again, I want you to understand that this is about corruption in the kingdom community and how God will sort it out at the end. This is a very big principle for us to understand, right? God will sort it out at the end. Notice verse 38. The field is the world. Now, we need to be very careful here. This parable illustrates not necessarily that there will be false believers among true believers in the church, although that is true to some extent. Otherwise, Jesus would have said, the field is the church, or the field is the kingdom. But he said that the field is the world. Ultimately, it is not the job of the church to weed out those who are Christians or appear to be Christians but actually are not. That is God's job at the end of the age. As long as God's people are still in the world, in the field, right? 
there will be unbelievers among them. But, but it shouldn't be because God's people receive unbelievers as if they were believers. No, the, the, the wheat understands what the wheat is. The tares are out there, but yet it's God's job to separate them. Now, who sows them? Well, clearly the devil, the enemy. He plants counterfeits in the world and in the kingdom community. And then he says, the reapers are the angels. And at the very end, the reapers gather and at the harvest or at the division of the two, he will cast the tares into the furnace of fire, but the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. See, Jesus used this parable to clearly illustrate the truth that there's two different paths and two eternal destinies. A furnace of fire represents one destiny and radiant glory. They'll shine forth as the sun. That represents the other destiny. By the way, it's a pretty heavy representation of an eternal destiny, right? A furnace of fire. Starting at verse 44, more parables about the kingdom. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. For joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field. Now, first of all, he says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field. The field is the world, but the man doesn't represent the believer so much. But because what do we have to buy the treasure with? I would say Jesus is the man who gave all that he had to buy the field. Now, this parable and the one following are different in character than the previous three. In the previous three parables, that is the wheat and the tares, the mustard seed and the leaven, each spoke of corruption in the kingdom community. These two parables, uh, in verses 44 and then 45 and 46, they speak mainly of how highly the king values the people of his kingdom. So what does he do? He finds a treasure in a field, and what does he do? He sells everything he has to get the treasure in the field. You see, the treasure is so wonderful that the man who has the field will give everything for it just so he can have the treasure that's within it. And the the treasure that's so wonderful to Jesus is you. You are the treasure in the field. You are the one that is so wonderful that Jesus found you and said, I'll buy the whole world spending everything I have so that I can have you. He redeemed the whole world. He brought redemption, or at least offered it, made it possible for the whole world so that he could have you. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now again, I would say the best way to understand this parable is that Jesus is the buyer and the individual believer is the pearl that he sees as so valuable that he would give it all to have it forever. Doesn't it seem crazy for a merchant to sell everything he has for one pearl? Can you imagine that? Here's a man, he's a businessman, and he has his operations, and he has his inventory, and he has all his retail operations and all the rest of it. And then one day he comes upon a, a, a pearl. And he's a jewelry salesman, let's say. And he thinks about all the diamond rings, all the rubies, all the emeralds, all the things, all the lesser pearls that he has back. And he says, bag up the whole store and sell it. I want this most magnificent pearl. That's what he does because he believes that this one pearl is worth everything else he has. That's how much Jesus values his people. Verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to the shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So will it be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Isn't it interesting? Jesus shows us that the world will remain divided right up until the end. And the church will not reform the world. There's still going to be the bad fish, the worthless fish that get trapped in the, um, in the dragnet. Don't you think it's very interesting? 
Look, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Jesus didn't tell us that the wheat was going to crowd out all the tares so that the field was just wheat. He didn't say that the good fish would eat up all the bad fish, and when the final harvest of the dragnet came, it would only be good fish in the net. Jesus is telling us the church is not going to transform the world. But at the end, there will be both good and bad, and the harvest will sort them out. That's how it will be at the end of the age. Oh, by the way, something you may not have considered. Did you notice it there in verse 50, I believe it was, where it says the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from the just? And then previously in the parable of the wheat and the tares, did you notice that Jesus said that the angels have a role in the coming harvest and judgment? We often don't think about that, and I think we don't think about it because we don't exactly know how it's going to work. But in these parables and in a few other places, Jesus refers to the idea that the angels have a role in the coming judgment. I don't know. Maybe when people stand before the judgment of God, angels will handle them and bring them before the throne, and one will stand on each side and just be sort of like the, 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 the police officers or the, the guardians of the court or something like that. I don't know. But the angels will have a role in the world to come. I remember reading once something by Charles Spurgeon. He said, that's why you should always speak respectfully of angels, because they're going to have a role in the final judgment. And you don't want to mess around with them. Now, verse 51. Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Now, don't you wish that Jesus, or that the disciples would have said to Jesus at that point, No, Jesus, explain more. Because then Jesus would have explained more about these parables to us. But instead they say, Yes, Lord. Then he said to them, Every scribe instructed the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure new or things new and old. You know, I think Jesus is saying to them, saying, listen, when you know God's word, when you are instructed in the things of God, you can bring forth old things and new. You know the old things. You know the things, for example, I think this would relate to the disciples most pointedly with the Old Testament. You know what the Old Testament knows, but you also know what God is doing right now. And I think that that's what an instructed teacher knows. They know what the Bible says, and they know what God is doing right now. Well, this sort of ends at verse 52, this long section dealing with the parables. So now we're just going to finish up the chapter and see something remarkable, okay? Now, the broader context before we came to chapter 13, right, was opposition, adversaries to Jesus. Now, we come to these parables, and many of the parables were about um, not everybody receiving, about corruption in the kingdom community. A lot of those parables were about this. Now, if you think Jesus is done being rejected, start here at verse 53. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. And when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished, and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, and, and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get these things? I want you to notice, Jesus comes to Nazareth and he's preaching and he's teaching in their synagogue. And what happens? They say, listen, we don't know where he got all this. He grew up like such a normal boy. We knew his parents. We knew him as a workman among us. He was the carpenter's son. He was a carpenter among us. Because these villages were familiar with Jesus as a boy, and accustomed to very ordinary things from him, we can conclude that Jesus grew up a very normal boy, right? There are things called the infancy gospels, these little apocryphal, which means false gospels that were written, and they have all these fanciful legends about Jesus, and he did these things, like Jesus makes little clay birds, and then he claps his hands, and the birds fly away, and all this stuff. Now listen, Nobody there in Nazareth says, oh yeah, he's the little boy who made the clay birds and he clapped his hands and the birds flew away. Jesus grew up as a very normal boy. 
so much so that the people in the village said, this doesn't compute. How can he have such wisdom? How can he do such mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? This common working man, he couldn't be such a man as this. And by the way, his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, they're very normal people. His mother, they're normal people. How can God use such a normal person so mightily? Verse 56, where then did this man get all these things? By the way, did you notice in verse 56, they don't even call him Jesus. This man, they call him. They don't appreciate him. Now, might I say something here? This is in Nazareth, his hometown. These are his own people who should be accepting him. By the way, it's not like Nazareth was continually producing a lot of great people, right? It's not like they say, well, you know, uh, Jesus, he doesn't compare to this guy who came from our village or this guy who came. Look, nobody great ever came from Nazareth. And yet they despised him. Verse 57 So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. You know, when we remember how strongly Jesus is associated with the city of Nazareth, over and over again, he's called Jesus of Nazareth. It's even more surprising to note that these people of Nazareth did not appreciate it. The success and glory of Jesus seemed only to make them more resentful towards him. And so Jesus says, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. You know, we often have wrong ideas about what it means to be spiritual. Sometimes we think that spiritual people will sometimes or must somehow be strange. Therefore, if you meet a truly spiritual person and see that they're in fact very normal, you may think they must not be very spiritual. Let me explain to you what I mean. If you meet somebody that you thought was very spiritual and yet somehow they seem very normal, don't think that they're not very spiritual. Sometimes we think that spiritual people should just be around and just radiate this glow and you know every word they say should be magical and just, wow, this, and you know, I could see the glow around their head and when they touch somebody, this and that. Listen, Jesus, in this sense, was so normal that people could say, look at him and say, he's nothing special or... He seems so normal, we can't understand why he speaks such mighty words and why he does such mighty deeds. That's what they said. Do you understand? They had a false understanding of what true spirituality was about. But yet, it says there, and this is very heavy in verse 58, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Isn't that Well, I was going to say it's fascinating, and it is fascinating, but it's very depressing. That Jesus was, in some manner, limited by their unbelief. How could that be? Can't Jesus do whatever he wants to do? Can't God do whatever he wants to do? How can God be limited by anybody's unbelief? Well, the answer is very simple is that God chooses to work with human cooperation. And as long as he does, therefore, when human beings are in unbelief and refuse to cooperate with God, then oftentimes God will voluntarily limit his work. Not because God can't work without human cooperation and faith, but because often he simply chooses not to. That's what we have to understand. And this is why we need to have faith. So look, the, the comparison's been made many times tonight, right? Wheat and tares, good fish, bad fish. Leaven, no leaven. Uh, birds corrupting the community. Which kind of soil are you? It's the kind of uh, chapter that makes us stand back and say, Lord, where am I at with you? Um, would I be offended by Jesus or by a false view of what spirituality really is?
Um, instead, what we want to be is those people who would receive the word rightly and cast out the word rightly, just the way Jesus would have us to do it. Father, that's our prayer tonight. We want to be like the good ground that received the word and brought it forth and yielded a harvest of some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. And so work in our lives, Lord, make us the good ground. Help us to break up the fallow ground. And we ask that you would do a very deep, wonderful work within us towards that end. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the greatness of our Savior, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that at the same time, he is utterly supernatural, but at the same time, very natural. We praise you for the greatness of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.